Hello and welcome to the Berkeley Remix, a podcast from the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library at the University of California, Berkeley. Founded in 1954, the center records and preserves the history of California, the nation, and our interconnected world. Lately, things have been challenging and uncertain. We're enduring an order to shelter in place, trying to read the news, but not too much, and prioritize self-care. Like many of you, we're in need of some relief. So we'd like to provide you with some. Episodes in this series, which we're calling Coronavirus Relief, may sound a bit different from those we've produced in the past, the ones that tell narrative stories drawing from our collection of oral histories. But like many of you, we here at the Oral History Center are in need of a break. We'll be adding some new episodes in this coronavirus relief series with stories from the field, things that have been on our minds, interviews that have been helping us get through, and find small moments of happiness. I'm afraid the younger generation won't understand this. Take this streetcar to Oakland and China Town, and we'd get there and start at five. I didn't experience any teasing that I can recall. It was the Exclusion Act that didn't allow the Asians to own property. Asian, especially meant Chinese. The Exclusion Act had stopped them from immigrating within the nice city. There were a lot of hills and cable cars. There were Chinese restaurants, shops, banks, hospitals, and just about any. Hi, I'm Miranda Zhang, a history undergrad at UC Berkeley. You're about to listen to an oral history performance I created called Rice All the Time, Chinese Americans in the Bay Area in the Early 20th Century. I originally intended for Rice All the Time to be performed by a few of my fellow students in front of a live audience. But of course, because of COVID-19 cancellations, we're now bringing you this performance in an audio format. Rice All the Time presents perspectives of multiple Chinese people growing up in the Bay Area in the early 20th century. It places their words into conversation with each other, and it invites you, as listeners, to interpret them. Now before we get to the performance, I'd like to share with you a little background on the history of Chinese people in California. Chinese immigration to the United States began in the mid-19th century. Thousands came to California as 49ers during the gold rush. Racial resentment among white settlers in the West led to the passing of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, which barred the immigration of Chinese laborers to the U.S. The act slowed the entrance of Chinese men and denied entrance to virtually all women except those married to merchants. Chinese immigration continued despite the Exclusion Act, which was only repealed in 1943, along with other anti-Chinese regulations. The number of Chinese women in the U.S. increased steadily after 1900, and Chinese Americans in the Bay Area and elsewhere built vibrant communities. This performance is made of direct quotes from oral histories in the archival collection of the Oral History Center of the Bancroft Library here at UC Berkeley. It features the experiences of eight Chinese Americans who lived in the Bay Area from the 1920s to the 1950s. All except one were second or third generation Chinese Americans who had spent all of their lives in the U.S. 
Alongside each other, these stories reveal a rich history and diversity of experiences within one ethnic group. While you're listening, I have some questions for you to keep in mind. Think about what you know now of the Chinese American community in the Bay Area. Does hearing these experiences change your perception of their history? If so, how? What can their experiences with discrimination and identity teach us now, during the time of coronavirus and particularly visible racism against Asian people? How do you relate to these stories, many from almost a century ago? Also, after listening, I want to hear your feedback. Whether they're answers to the questions I posed or other thoughts, please take a few minutes to fill out the Google form in the show notes. I appreciate any comments you may have because your feedback will be super helpful to an article I'm working on about this project. Now, please sit back and enjoy this performance of Rice All the Time. There was not another Chinese family in Point Richmond, even a cafe or anything. Outside of my own relatives, I never had seen another Chinese. Living in Berkeley, there weren't very many Asians in my area. The Asians living in that area were probably my cousins. It was before the onset of the war that brought in lots of people from elsewhere. Berkeley was integrated in that sense. There were blacks, whites living in the neighborhood, quite a few Japanese, and some Chinese. More Japanese in my neighborhood than Chinese. We didn't know any Chinese. We lived in a neighborhood where we were the only Chinese. I went to a school where my family was the only Chinese in the school. In Emeryville, there were three families, all Cantonese. It was an all-white town. All my mother had was me, her children, and her husband, whom she hardly knew. Fortunately, I didn't experience any teasing that I can recall. My father was very protective because he had seen the meanness to the Chinese, how they were treated, and he wanted to protect us because we were in a white community. I wasn't treated any differently because, remember now, these are people who are not snobby people. They're working class white who tend on the whole to be friendly people. They're not overly secure. There's no snobbery. There's no snobbery in our neighborhood. There was none. When I was in grammar school, I hated it because I was never included. Never included. All the years at grammar school, I was not included in the classroom. I was not included in the playground. I can remember seeing myself going out during playtime, and I would be just standing there, practically invisible. If I would go over to the rings because nobody else was there and start to swing, they would come and gather and push me off. The teachers were not there for you. The kids were just mean to you. I think it was the Exclusion Act that didn't allow the Asians to own property. Asian especially meant Chinese. The Exclusion Act had stopped them from immigrating and stopped them from owning property in the United States, especially California. I think they had their own law that was a little more stringent than the United States law. They were even segregated in the schools when you read history. I've lived around town in Berkeley, and Berkeley was a very difficult town to rent in for non-whites. We really couldn't find a place to live there, because there would be a place available, but when we came to see them, the place was rented. It became very discouraging. 
I sort of gave up. My sister, she'd call ahead of time and say that she was Chinese. We found out when we moved to San Francisco that the only place we could live was Chinatown because no one would rent to us or sell us a home outside of Chinatown. I was hurt more than anything else. Many years later, I served on a commission on housing discrimination in the city of Berkeley. This was actually before the Rumford Bill, and that was in the 60s. You'd think Berkeley, being a university city, it's an enlightened thing. It's just like any other city, though. People are frightened. If you allow a minority person to live there, it would allow all the rest of the other minorities in. It's really quite stupid. Yes, I was really disappointed in Berkeley. It was not a force of law. It was by word of mouth. No one wanted neighbors whose culture they did not understand or who could not speak to them in their own language. When we moved to Oakland Chinatown, I realized how different our family was from the people I met in the church. Culturally, we were very different because we were brought up as a Christian family. We celebrated Christmas, Easter, Fourth of July, all of the American holidays, also Thanksgiving. People in Chinatown did not celebrate these holidays. They celebrated the Chinese holidays, a big difference. When I joined the church, I realized this. They were all very curious about me because I was so different. San Francisco's Chinatown was a nice community within a nice city. There were a lot of hills and cable cars. There were Chinese restaurants, shops, banks, hospitals, and just about any kind of shop you would want. Also, Cantonese was the main dialect spoken, so it felt comfortable. There were modern conveniences in all the houses. All of these things made the adjustment to the new country easier. Chinatown was a haven for the Chinese immigrant. At this time, everyone in this area spoke Cantonese because most of the people in this area came from Guangdong. That is the one province in China that speaks Cantonese. So San Francisco, Chinatown was all Cantonese speaking. It's only been in the last maybe 20, 30 years since there has been a large influx of Chinese from other areas of China that Mandarin is now spoken fairly commonly. My family hired some Chinese men to teach us how to write and speak Chinese and how to read. But after spending all day in American school and then trying to revert back to a strange language that as children we never knew except for a few words from our parents, it was very hard. We were very poor Chinese scholars. That was one of the deciding factors for our parents. Our children are getting too Americanized. They have no Chinese friends. They have no Chinese background. We think we'd better move them back to San Francisco, where they can live in Chinatown and learn more about their Chinese culture. I guess at that time, there weren't too many Chinese families that ventured and lived outside of Chinatown. San Francisco Chinatown has always been the very established community. But Oakland Chinatown at that time was rather small. Now it is quite different. It's large. I went to Chinese school in Oakland. So we would take the streetcar to Oakland in Chinatown and we'd get there and start at five and start home at eight. That's a long day. 
My dad wanted us to learn Chinese from the time we were in school. So we had tutors all the way through high school, my sister and I. The tutor came in five afternoons a week from four to six and Saturday mornings from 10 to 12. That's a lot of Chinese. When I was young, we used to have a teacher come to our house. It was really for my brother to know Chinese. The girls got a little bit of Chinese. There used to be a name. I forget what the word is. A very derogatory name for people who did not speak Chinese in the Chinese community. As I grew up, my mother was ashamed a little bit. <laughs> not really though, but you know, people would always mention, your children don't speak Chinese. My mother knew English, but she always wanted to speak Cantonese. But I didn't. I always answered in English. Made her mad. With my generation, you didn't want to speak Chinese because you wanted to integrate. Didn't want to eat with chopsticks, none of that. Why are we having rice all the time? I always loved my Chinese food. Sundays were always noodles at lunchtime. Those wonderful noodles. I can remember from the time I was maybe 11, 12, 13 on up was that Sundays was when the New York Philharmonic came on the air. It was radio at that time, no television. Three o'clock in New York was lunchtime in San Francisco. My sister and I would sit on the steps and have our lunch and listen to the New York Philharmonic. My mother cooked Chinese food and American food, but I don't. I just eat regular American food. We had Chinese meals for dinner, but Western breakfasts and lunch if we were home on the weekends. But dinner was always Chinese food. One of the things that dad always wanted us to do was be able to name every dish that was on the table at night and to speak Chinese at the dinner table. We want to produce the concept of a Chinese American who is striving hard to let people know that the Chinese part of a Chinese American is something the Chinese are proud of. But at the same time, they want to be known more as Americans. I'm afraid the younger generation won't understand this, but holding on to traditions and customs is holding on to part of one's identity. I hope that more of our young people will try to hold on to their Chinese identity and heritage. I think if you are born a Chinese, sooner or later you come to appreciate the background and the culture of things Chinese. I know that among our friends, all our children that are growing up, do not have that much interest in Chinese culture. But as soon as they approach middle age and thereafter, then they pick up and want to learn more about their language and background. Thank you so much for listening to this oral history performance. I hope that it sparks your interest in the full interviews with each individual featured in the podcast. Many of these interviews include videos in addition to a printed transcript, and you can easily access them through the Oral History Center website and in the show notes. I'd like to thank our performers, Maggie Deng, Deborah Chu, Lauren Pong, and Diane Chow for their wonderful work. I thank my mentors, Amanda Tuiz and Roger Early Pryor for making this episode come to fruition. Thanks so much to Shanna Farrell for being our editor and sound designer. 
And thank you to the people whose interviews were featured in this performance. Roy Song, Alfred Sue, Maggie G, Theodore B. Lee, Dorothy Ng, Thomas W. Chin, Young Oivo Lee, and Doris Shung Lee. Once again, don't forget to send your reactions to this episode. I want to hear your thoughts, however long. There's a link to a Google form in the show notes that includes a few questions about your listening experience. Thank you so much for listening to Rice All the Time. I hope you enjoyed the performance and that you have a wonderful rest of your day. Thanks for listening to the Berkeley Remix. We'll catch up with you next time. And in the meantime, from all of us here at the Oral History Center, we wish you our best. <laughs>